It was a hot Indiana August, and the sun was beating down on me. I was covered in sweat and the stink of an open landfill. Life was not good. We were five days into the search, and it was tedious. The 50-foot hole into the ground smelled, and the garbage strewn for yards and yards around it held its own issues. I was tired. My people were tired, and there was no end in sight. That's when the local FBI agent came up to me. He apologized, but his boss, the special agent in charge, wanted to talk with me. The agent turned and pointed towards the full-sized RV with all the satellite dishes and antennas sticking out of it. I sighed and headed towards the mobile command center. The FBI had been very helpful so far. The local agents were great, and the evidence team they had brought in to help us were busting their asses right along with the rest of my guys. The mobile command center was something else. It had pulled into the landfill the day before and set up. I had yet to see anyone get out of it. As I got close, I could hear the air conditioner running. It didn't make me happy. When I got inside, the little conference room filled up fast. There was me and the two local agents who had been helping, and the expert on landfill digs from the National Center on Missing and Exploited Children, or NICMIC. We were filthy and smelled bad. Across the table was the sack, clean and fresh. He started into it pretty quickly. This is taking too long. We're going to change the way we're conducting the search. First, I'm going to have the evidence unit stop going through the piles as we pull them out, and we're going to start moving the dig holes around. That's when I cleared my throat. <clears throat> I don't think so, was all I said. He looked at me like I'd just crawled out of a hole, which I had. I'm sorry you don't agree with me, but I am getting some directions from Washington and... I shook my head. No, it's not about agreeing or disagreeing. You do realize that this is not your case, right? It's mine. And we'll do it the way I want it done and the way the expert wants it done. I really don't care about what pressures you have because that 90 degree sun beating down on my people's ass and how much drinking water I can get in here is more important than your promotion. I appreciate the resources so far, but feel free to pack them up and go home. I got work to do. And me and the expert got up and went back to work. About 20 minutes later, the two local agents came out. And 20 minutes after that, the command post was pulling away. I kept my searchers, but the sack in his air-conditioned office was long gone. And good riddance. The most terrifying sentence in the English language is, I'm from the federal government, and I'm here to help. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. I've worked with most of the federal agencies at one time or another, and for the most part, the individual agents were great. Dedicated professionals working hard to solve the cases. I always appreciated the resources they could bring to a case. But the moment I had to deal with one of the guys in charge, things tended to take a turn for the worst. The higher up the administrative ladder you went, the ideas and goals of what you were all trying to accomplish would change very quickly. The biggest problem is that the needs, desires, and decisions made in Washington, D.C. do not necessarily coincide with the issues on the ground in Iowa. But that hasn't stopped a historical push for a national police force. And let me explain why that is not a good idea. So what is a national police force? A national police force is an organization run by the central government of a country with the purpose of providing police services such as enforcing the laws and ensuring health and safety to the people of that country. We've got King Louis XIV to thank for that. In 1667, he created the first national police force in France. Since then, we've seen national police forces in many countries around the world. 
Today, national police forces are common in places like France, Japan, Spain, Indonesia, the Netherlands, and the Philippines, and dozens of other small countries. We also see variations on the national police model with territorial police in the United Kingdom and Canada. Since it's so common, it must be a good idea. And when you take it at face value, there does seem to be some benefits from the concept. First, you get a force that is nationally funded. The deep pockets at the national level would far outweigh any small town's budgets, so the national force should have all of the necessary resources. Secondly, you get to control hiring and training. This way, you can ensure that all of the officers are trained and ready to do their jobs. And lastly, this central organization would be more efficient, and you wouldn't have to worry about duplication of efforts. All in all, a good move, right? Wrong. At least for the U.S. The idea works in France, but France isn't even as big as the state of Texas. The U.S. has 49 more of those state things out there, so the size of the area needs to be policed is massive. And with this massive land area comes differences. Differences in climate, differences in economy, and differences in culture. Trying to make a one-shoe-fit-all doesn't work, and neither would a national police force. Ultimately, the issues that affect one area of the U.S. don't necessarily affect another area. While one state hits 90 degrees, another has a snowstorm. While one area might have a surge in homicides, another might have a burglary problem. Again, another area might be made up of predominantly black citizens, while another is Hispanic. All of these require different responses, training, and skills to get the job done and meet the overall goal of policing to protect the community and enforce the laws. And speaking of laws, we have 51 sets of them in the U.S., or at least at the most basic level. Remember that the United States was formed originally as a confederation of states working together to support each other. With the adoption of the United States Constitution, we became a constitutional republic. But Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution established that the states would remain separate. That means each state has its own constitution, its own laws. And then on top of that are federal laws designed to deal with those circumstances that went outside of the individual states and affected the nation as a whole. Finally, let's not forget about the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, and that says, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. And that's why we became the most decentralized nation in the world regarding law enforcement. Do you really want someone from Washington, D.C. deciding whether or not to authorize an extra patrol detail on the Southside District because of someone blowing up mailboxes? Would you want another someone from D.C. to decide how many cops you get to have working in your little town on Saturday night? Or how about having any cops at all? A national police force would be organized, managed, and led out of a central location. We'll just use Washington, D.C. because, well, you know it would be D.C. If New York City was having a crime wave, would they let Bozeman, Montana keep their 65 police officers? Or do you think those guys are going to get pulled and sent to battle crime in New York City? On the flip side of that, do you think the citizens in Lebanon, Kansas would want 10 officers from the Fishcorn neighborhood of Detroit showing up to do work? I don't think so. Honestly, this is really all common sense. The U.S. is far too big and diverse for a national police force. We must have each locality responsible for their own police services so that those services can not only meet the needs of the community, but be reflective of the community itself then why am I talking about it? Because it's been coming for a long time, and the reasons for it have very little to do with policing and almost everything to do with political power. Say hello to your new friend, the Department of Homeland Security. On September 11, 2001, terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. 
September 11th is seen by many to be the most complete and egregious failure of the intelligence and enforcement systems of the federal government. In response to the attacks on 9-11, then-President George W. Bush formed the Office of Homeland Security. In 2002, the Homeland Security Act established the Department of Homeland Security and incorporated 22 federal agencies under one department. This was no minor shuffling. It was the most significant government reorganization since the National Security Act of 1947, which ultimately created the Central Intelligence Agency. The reason for this incorporation of agencies was to encourage and force the sharing of necessary information to protect the U.S. against enemies foreign and domestic. What it did was centralize federal law enforcement. The issues and problems with DHS would take another podcast to outline. Let's just say a quick Google search and you will locate dozens of major criticisms over its short existence. The creation of the Department of Homeland Security is important because it shows the blueprint by which the federal government will try and create a national police force. In 2009, the RAND Corporation, a global policy think tank, did a study expressing the need for a stability police force for the United States. The RAND study focuses on the U.S. as a world peacekeeping force and points to Kosovo, Haiti, and other instances in which the U.S. has sent military forces into other countries to help stabilize those countries. The creation of a stability police force would allow trained police to go to these countries in conjunction with military personnel to establish law and order and train indigenous personnel to properly police their country. Price tag? Over $900 million for over 6,000 officers. Great idea? Maybe, but it would also allow the federal government to set the precedent for just such a force within the U.S. Riots in Jackson, Mississippi? Send in the Stability Police Force. Tornado in Mayfield, Kentucky? Send in the Stability Police Force. Remember, since they would be police and not military, they would be exempt from the Posse Comitatus Act, which prevents the President of the United States from sending in the military to conduct law enforcement operations. When you really think about it, Things get very scary, very quick. The Legal Liability Risk Management Institute is the nation's largest provider of liability and risk management services in the United States. Our goal is to help reduce liability, reduce lawsuits, and enhance officer performance. Regardless of the size of your agency, we have a risk management solution. You may contact us at www.llrmi.com or call 317-386-8325. Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y. 360.com. In 2020, we saw another wave of anti-police rhetoric kick off with the murder of George Floyd. This quickly turned into the defund police movement. The defund police movement wanted to take away police funding and reinvent the police to combat systemic racism and social injustice within the system. Except that systemic racism and social justice wasn't inherent in the system, and the facts didn't support the conclusions or the actions taken by the press and politicians on the issue. Demanding for a reinvention of law enforcement opens the doors for politicians to grab more power, to take it away from the municipalities and put law enforcement into federal hands. The defund movement is a de facto national police movement. 
to keep the issue on the front pages and make the people believe there existed a problem when there wasn't one, the media would focus on a police-citizen encounter that had a tragic result, and not the millions of other encounters that had no issues or problems. Even if the officer did everything right, the media and politicians would conflate it and lie in order to push the narrative, the very narrative that paves the groundwork for a national police force. With the microscope on the profession and the COVID pandemic in full swing, many municipalities ordered their police officers to stand down. Don't do anything. Don't get sick. Don't get on CNN. Many police departments across the U.S. just turned the lights off. We've seen the results of that. The lack of police enforcement has emboldened the criminal element. If there are no consequences for breaking the law, then why not break the law? One of the most notable outcomes of this can be seen on the roadways. Have you done much driving lately? I drive a lot, often going from state to state to provide training, and I spend hours on the highways and roadways across America. And I am here to tell you, it's terrifying out there. I've decided to sell my car and buy an old tow truck. I'll weld a bunch of spikes to it and hang a couple of dead bodies off the front like the Road Warrior movie because that's what it's like driving across the country. And the dramatic rise in fatalities due to car crashes in 2020 and 2021 support my statement. Why are so many people dying on the roads? Because so many people are driving like idiots. Seriously, it's a madhouse out there. And why? Because law enforcement across the nation stopped enforcement of traffic laws due to COVID and the rise in anti-police sentiment. We turned the lights off and people died. The same comparison can be made in the increase in violent crime. The very same people who loudly cried to defund the police are quietly increasing police budgets trying to get a handle on the spike in crime. Their next step will be to cry for federal aid. In May, President Biden called on states to use the monies provided by the federal government as stimulus to fund police. Cool, we get money. Wait a minute. If you take federal money, you have to abide by the federal rules. More hooks for a national police force. It's very easy to see why a national police force wouldn't work. I've laid out a number of small scenarios that show just how it would fall apart. But you've been hearing about it for a while and just didn't realize it. If we can have enough people tell you it's a good idea, then maybe you'll think it's a good idea. And if we can couch it in legalese, then even better. Welcome the Consent Decree. A consent decree is a legal settlement between two parties without anyone admitting fault or liability. Police consent decrees come into play when the Department of Justice determines that a police department crossed a line in its interaction with the citizens, and this usually regards use of force. The Pittsburgh Police Department was the first U.S. city to enter into a federal consent decree. And since 1997, the Department of Justice has investigated over 70 agencies. Not all of those have resulted in consent decrees, but it's clear that this is the favored tool to force departments into compliance with the federal government. Alex Del Carmen, professor of criminology and an associate dean at Tarlington State University in Texas, served on the federal monitoring teams for consent decrees in New Orleans and Puerto Rico. He said, there are cases across the United States where you find the police department is so lost or far removed from the Constitution of the United States that a federal intervention of that magnitude is not just necessary, but required. After the Rampart scandal in the late 1990s, the Los Angeles Police Department entered into a federal consent decree that placed an emphasis on nine specific areas. Management and supervisory measures to promote civil rights integrity, critical incident procedures, documentation, investigation, and review, management of gang units, management of confidential informants, 
program development for response to persons with mental illness, training, integrity audits, operations of the police commission and inspector general, and community outreach and public information. Interesting. Like a national police force, the consent decree looks good on paper, and it has many supporters. Those supporters almost universally work for the federal government or are members of anti-police organizations. At its core, the federal government comes into your agency and tells you how to do things in your community. Once they do that, they're not just going to focus solely on the problems identified through complaints or investigations. They are going to insert other requirements that may or may not be appropriate for your location. All of this to avoid your city having to pay money. When you think about it, wouldn't having to face the consequences of your agency's and city's actions be a more reliable force for change than coming to an agreement that forces you to do things differently without having to pay a real price for your mistakes? Federal consent decrees, like the Department of Homeland Security, are just another step in this long history of trying to establish a national police force. We've established that the United States is too big and diverse for a national police force. We've established that the Confederation of States, our entire constitutional republic is based on, goes against the very idea of a national police force. And, of course, the Tenth Amendment was designed to keep those types of powers reserved for the states and local agencies. Then why the big push for a national police force? Power, of course. If the federal government had control of the amount type and application of public safety powers for every county and municipality in the U.S., they would be able to decide everything about what that community could do, when they could do it, and how it was going to be done. Everything from how many officers they would allow you to have, to what kind of cars they would drive, to what shifts they would work. And all of these decisions would be made from Washington, D.C. and not at the local level. They wouldn't be able to respond quick enough to emergencies. They wouldn't be able to provide the responses that would fit in with your local culture. And the citizens would have very little, if any, control over the type of public safety they received. How do we stop this from happening? Well, push for professionalism at your agency. Build a professional and ethical police department. Focus on training your officers and properly staffing your agency. Build better community relations and work with your local leaders to make them understand the agency is organized to meet the common good of the community. Be leery of the outside influences and never forget the most terrifying sentence in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com.